This first session will be a bit of orientation. I'm going to tell you why we're doing this and where we're going. Uh, the second session is uh, setting again some context for the life of Paul. Uh, tomorrow it'll get pretty meaty, pretty much an adventure. Uh, I'm going to trust the Holy Spirit to help me tell Paul's story. Uh, it's an awesome story by the grace of God. He's the only one permitted to say, imitate me. That's why we study him. And so uh, I'm going to pray as well. I want to share a few things about those notes. We left margins. There will be different times. I'm going to encourage you to put in things in the margins. Uh, It's also meant for personal notes. If during the course of me yapping, you have a question, try to make a note of it and we'll entertain those maybe at the end if we have time tonight or tomorrow. Um, But I will definitely, there's things in my notes that you don't have. I've been adding to them since I did those notes, so I want to make sure you get this down, because later on when the dust settles, there's a CD copy, you get a hold of one of the sessions, you have those notes, you can go back, review, reflect, and uh, trust for the the Lord to uh, quicken certain things back to remembrance. Uh, there's a lot of people praying for this seminar around the country. Uh, I want to thank you for taking the time. If you open your heart and press into God's heart, you will be changed for the better, and you will be more ready to meet Jesus Christ when He comes. Amen? Amen? Uh, we're going to cover most of Acts, most of the epistles. Uh, we're going to do part one. Tonight, tomorrow morning, tomorrow afternoon, and then we haven't even set a date on part two, but sometime after the new year, uh, and that has worked really well. Normally, back home, I do this on a weekly basis for about 12 weeks. This summer, I did a men's Bible study, all of them ex-drug addicts, uh, alcoholics, and we ended up going five months because it just, that's what the Lord did, so... It's flexible, and I, I try to hear the Lord. I, I love to preach and teach. Uh, I'm going to try to do more teaching than preaching, but sometimes we get excited about the message of Paul, and so we go for it. Let me pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, I bless each one here right now in Jesus' name. Father, I pray the anointing on my brothers and sisters as well as myself, and that, Lord, we go beyond information to impartation so that our hearts will be changed forever. We need it, we want it, we desire it. And so we bless you, Lord, in Jesus' name. I want you to look quickly at the map that you have there. There's also one in your notes. This is Paul's world. I want you to locate a couple of key cities just to give us a bit of orientation here. Uh, If you find Jerusalem, uh, Jerusalem should be kind of towards the bottom of the map. I forget the number of it. Let me get mine out here. What, what number is it? All right, two. Just to give you an idea now, uh, if you go from Jerusalem to straight north to number seven, which would be Antioch, it's a very, very important church. That's the kind of church you want to become more and more. Antioch is 350 miles north of Jerusalem. The average walk during that time would be five to ten miles a day, wherever Paul went, he walked. And so it's about a 30 to a 40-day journey from Antioch to Jerusalem. This will make 
more sense when we get into the Jerusalem Council and all of what transpired in the backdrop of the Galatian letter where I try to answer why was Paul so mad when he wrote Galatians. He really didn't write his letters by the way he dictated them. He used a personal secretary. He would dictate them, would you agree with me, under a serious anointing. (laughs) Praise the Lord. It was the Word of God. It was the Word of the Lord. If you look at number eight, just around the bend there is Tarsus. This is Paul's hometown. This is where he was born. Uh, about 90 miles from Antioch. And then, of course, if you keep going on that, that's a major trade route there. You will find uh, number 13, 12, 11, and 15. Those are the four cities where Paul starts four churches. In one of them, he's stoned to death and raised from the dead. And then, of course, if you keep going, you can see where uh, Greece is, Corinth, Thessalonica, Philippi, and then to the further left of the map is uh, Rome. Anyway, this is Paul's world. This is where he was born, raised. This is where he ministered. Geographically, by the way, it's the center of the earth, uh, Jerusalem. If you go to all points worldwide, Jerusalem really is the land of Israel, really is the center. So let's go to our notes. Oh, also, if you want to Look, in the back of your notes, uh, there should be a timeline. It might be the last page. Life of Paul timeline. Just to show the time frame we're looking at here. Paul was born in 1 AD, about a year, uh, you know, maybe three, four years younger than Christ. Uh, He was saved in 34 AD. And then you see first missionary trip. And then also what I have in that timeline is when he wrote or dictated his epistles kind of in a sequence there. And then in 67 AD, both Paul and Peter are martyred in the same year in Rome. And so that's your basic timeline. So let's let's go to page number one in your notes. Page number one in your notes. I want you to write this scripture down. Amos 7, verses 7 to 8. Kind of at the top to the left. Amos 7, verses 7 and 8. Amos got a vision from the Lord, and the Lord asked Amos a question. What do you see, Amos? He said, I see a plumb line. And the plumb line was dropped. Now, who knows what a plumb line is? See, the building looks square when you look at it visually until then the plumb line is dropped. You can say, here at Victory, we've got a nice church. No doubt you do. We got life in the house. People are coming to Christ. And things are really clicking. And I have no reason to doubt that. But if you were to compare yourselves with another church and say, you know, we got more life than that church down the block. Or we, you know, as a believer, once I'm saved and I'm spirit-filled, I'm really committed. I'm really dedicated. I know about that believer over there. But then all of a sudden you drop the plumb line. And when you drop the plumb line... And that's what I'm going to try to do in the Life of Paul seminar is drop a plumb line as it relates to church and pattern and Paul's apostolic passion concerning his message and his method. Now, in your notes there on the top of the page, after Jesus' death, burial, resurrection... This is agreed upon by many, many scholars. The life and ministry of the Apostle Paul is the most significant thing in the history of the church. He was able to write most of the New Testament under the Holy Spirit. 
His conversion was so radical, it rocked his world. He immediately went into a hostile environment because of his conversion, because of his fame before salvation, as a legalist and a follower of the law and Judaism. Then for Paul to be saved, it it shocked everybody, starting with the church, frankly, and then, of course, his fellow contemporaries. Now, I have two quotes there. One is from Henry Blackaby. How many of you have ever read the book Experiencing God? Very popular book, excellent book, actually. I took this quote out of Blackaby's book, and I'll just go down, let's go to the middle of it. The nation is a reflection of God's people. The problem is not with the darkness in our nation. The problem is with the light that should be coming from the churches that should dispel the darkness. Transformational discipleship is required. Now, I want you to circle, underline that word transformational. This is what Paul's gospel did to people, and his gospel did it quickly. Right in your margin there, John chapter 2. I may minister on this Sunday morning in more detail in a separate message. I'm still seeking God, frankly, and I'm not sure. But the first miracle that Jesus did to show his glory and to show ultimately what he was all about is that he did what? He changed water into wine. In other words, his message, his ministry, his death, burial, and resurrection opens up the door for us to be transformed, changed. And transformation is what we're after, pictured by that water into wine. Uh, Paul says, for example, in Romans 12, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now that transformed is what happens to a caterpillar in order to become a butterfly. And this is the passion and the goal for each one of us as followers of Jesus is to be transformed into all that God has for us. It's a whole lot more than just going to heaven and being rescued from hell. There's a journey, there's a a walk, and there's an incredible invitation from the Lord to be totally changed. How many of you have changed a bit since you've been saved? How many would agree you've got a bit more changing yet to do? If you question that, look to your spouse right now, and she will give you about five areas that you can start working on. All right. Um, so we can all agree that we haven't arrived. Amen? Amen? All right, that's good. Now look at the second quote is from T. Austin Sparks. T. Austin Sparks lived in England. He's now in heaven. He discipled Watchman Nee in the 1930s. Tremendous man of God. He was part of a fellowship of brethren that they embraced humility to such a degree that when they would write a lot of documents, they wouldn't even put their names to it. Very deep, wonderful brother. Here's his quote. He says, The history of generations of missionary enterprise, tens of thousands of missionaries, vast sums of money, immense administrative organization, and more on the publicity, propaganda, and advocacy side does not compare favorably with Paul's apostolic career of 33 years. What he's saying there is basically Paul had some powerful secrets. He had a powerful insight into the heart of God, into the ways of God, and he had a powerful revelation not only of the gospel but also how to do church. I want you to write in your margin to the right of that quote four words. What 
Why? Let me get them right here. Uh, do what, who, how, and when. Write those four words down. Very, very important. Who, what, how, and when. And I'm going to zero in just on two words there, brothers and sisters. What and how. It's not just knowing what God wants us to do. It's how does God want us to do it. God is not a pragmatist, okay? For the Lord, and never justifies the means. Let me give you a scripture for that. Those four words, put it next there. Zechariah 4, verse 6. Can anybody quote that for me? Zechariah 4, verse 6. This would be a very, very important verse to the life of Paul. This was how he operated. He didn't operate that way immediately. He had to learn it. It basically says this, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Now, might and power, and you're going to hear a lot about this in this seminar, the difference between operating out of our soul versus being led by and living in our spirit. There really is a difference. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. The Holy Spirit is the only one authorized to conduct heaven's business on earth. That's why when Paul led people to Christ, immediately he got them filled with the Holy Spirit. It was crucial that they be filled with the Holy Spirit. Because he's the only one that's going to be left behind to help them become and be the church. So, let's look at this question in the middle of your notes. Why study the life of Paul? Why should you take 12 to 15 hours of your time and listen to this guy yap away? Number one. To see how Paul finished his course well. Turn with me in your Bible, 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4. <clears throat> if I go too fast, forgive me. Thank God it's being taped so that you can listen more later. I will, again, tell you to write certain uh, verses, but let me tell you a little bit about 2 Timothy. It's the last letter right before Paul dies. He knows he's about to die. He's writing to a beloved spiritual son named Timothy. And he says in verse 7, I have finished my course. I have finished my course. Now I want you to write next to 2 Timothy 4 in your notes, my course, and put quotes over that. Because there is a course for your life. And if I do my job right, uh, and we should, we'll cover this starting even tonight, there's a course for your life. The idea of course is a well-defined path. Mike Nelson maybe didn't realize in 1985 or 1980 or whenever that his course would involve pastoring a church in his hometown. It was in God's heart, all right? That's part of his course. Uh, I think we could all right now, if you've been saved for any number of years, can probably reflect and remember, maybe with tears, believers who once started and who are no longer walking with the Lord. Backslidden, bitter, picked off, disillusioned, what happened? I was saved in the Jesus movement. It was a revival of young people. Thousands were saved across America. So many no longer walking with the Lord. My wife looked at me a couple of years ago. She came across a study out of Fuller. She said, you know, biblically and historically, two out of three don't finish well. She said, honey, let's finish well. Let's be one out of three. 
let's finish well. Child of God, do you want to finish well? That's why you want to look at Paul's life. You want to go out like Elijah. Thank you very much. A blaze of fiery glory. I don't know if the Lord's going to send a chariot for you, but I do know this. I want to hear when I get to heaven someday, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. And I want to finish well, bringing glory to Jesus Christ. Um, And so that's why we're looking at Paul and looking at Paul's life. Number two, when you get done with this, you're going to have a much greater understanding of what is called Paul's gospel. Now, why is that crucial? I think the verse there is Romans 2, verse 16. Paul's gospel is the only gospel that will get you to heaven. Any other gospel is ultimately false. And he warns about that. He has such a profound revelation of truth that he's able to write that verse in Romans, according to my gospel, everybody will be judged. Church, that's either a very arrogant statement or an incredibly humble statement. But Paul had the revelation of the gospel. Now, in your notes, would you write, if it's not there, the gospel of grace. I can't emphasize the word grace enough. We're going to talk a lot about grace during this seminar. The grace of God is why you are here even tonight. Some of you should have been dead a long time ago. You are here by the grace of God. Say, thank you, Lord, for the grace of God. Uh, that The only reason I'm here is because your grace impacted and, and, and moved upon my life. All right. The third thing we're going to do is we're going to look at the epistles in the order that they were written in their historical setting. The reason this is really important is what's going to happen, one of the most favorite uh, testimonies that I have regularly heard now the last three years is saints getting up on a Sunday morning after seminar, giving testimony and saying, you know, I've been saved for 40 years. And I understand Galatians like I've never understood Galatians. The whole thing just kind of comes alive. It's leaping off the page because the New Testament is not an academic book. It's not meant... The order of the epistles is a disaster. It starts with the largest one, Romans, and works its way. But you have to look at the order in which they were written. And when you look at the order in which they were written, what was going on in Paul's life while he's dictating these epistles, it will, in some cases, move you to tears if I can do the job right. That's why I get fired up about this, and that's why I get excited about it. We're going to understand how Paul's ministry defined apostolic. Now, you see a number of apostolic words there. Apostolic conversion. Why is this important? Because it's a pattern. Out of apostolic conversion, would you write next to the word conversion, two questions. Two questions are birthed in a true conversion. In fact, I would say this boldly, confidently, and humbly. If those two questions aren't in the heart of a person claiming to be a believer in Jesus Christ, I question the validity of the new birth. They're that important. And what happens is those two questions come into your heart in the form of two desires, incredible desires. And when I stand before Jesus Christ, and you stand before Jesus Christ, the entire judgment seat of Christ will revolve around you answering and me answering those two questions. So you want to know what they are. 
We'll get to that later on in the seminar. All right. The key, though, is the two questions are desires that are absolutely placed. I call them grace desires. Grace desires. And they were the desires that propel Paul for 33 years as a follower of Christ. If you allow those desires to grow in your heart, to expand in your life, they will carry you to the end with an incredible finished walk with Jesus Christ where each of you enter into your calling, the reason He saved you, where each of you exercise the gifts that you have been given, the talents that were dispersed at your new birth. Now, I don't want to digress too much, but there are so many believers in the body of Christ Glad they're going to heaven, not going to hell, but pretty much living their life, doing their thing, and not, in many cases, even having a clue why Jesus saved them. So we're going to find that out. I get ahead of myself, but that's all right. That's not unusual. Where are we? Our apostolic preparation. I want you to write next to the hidden years this phrase, the iceberg principle. We'll explain that in detail at the appropriate time. The iceberg principle. If you go out into the ocean and you see an iceberg, somebody help me. How much is visible versus hidden? Ninety percent below the water. Ten percent public. I was going to address a leaders conference in Michigan. The Lord gave me a vision of an upside-down iceberg. And he spoke to my heart, many of my leaders. Public ministry, activity, well-intended, sincere, above the water, but very little underneath the water. No hidden life. Doomed to topple over. Please hear me, church. Now we get into some of the more encouraging, challenging, inviting. Your hidden life with Jesus is much more important to Him than your public ministry for Jesus. He loves for you to hang out with Him. He loves for you to be content with Him. Hidden. Paul will be saved and go into a hidden period in his life for 12 years. He disappears. And we're going to talk a lot about what God wants to do and establish in the hidden life of every believer. And you can all have it. I'm trusting you have some of it, but let's just go for it more and more and deeper and deeper. Write this phrase down in your own words. Who you are to God is more important than what you do for God. It's the same principle. You are a human being before you are a human doer. Religion is totally opposite. Religion says you have to do, perform, function in order to become and whatever, be accepted. That's not the gospel. That's not Christianity. Christianity says you are accepted first unconditionally for who you are. And out of that incredible acceptance and rest, you begin to lovingly flow with God and follow the Lord. And the doing 
flows out of that. Hidden preparation. Paul has an apostolic message where you can see there, uh, letter C, there's 13 letters he will dictate. 13 letters he will dictate. Uh, Colossians and Romans, when he dictated those two letters, were churches he had never been to. Very full with incredible, uh, obviously, revelation. Let me just say this quickly, and then I'll expand more tomorrow. I have wrestled in this seminar how to treat the epistles. Because once you come to the appropriate time to talk about Galatians, we have to talk about Galatians. But I I had to get really selective. Otherwise, you know, good grief, you could take and get bogged down for weeks just on one epistle, right? And yet you don't want to gloss over it because it's a tremendous, important book. And so help us as we take this journey tomorrow when we go through the epistles, when we come to the right ones. Uh, Paul has two personal letters, Philippians and Philemon. Philippians and Philemon. Philemon is a story about Onesimus, a slave who runs away, who Paul leads to Christ. It will bring us to tears. Letters to young apostles, First uh, and Second Timothy and Titus. They're called the pastoral epistles in Bible school, but they're really letters to young apostles. And then you have five letters written to churches in some degree of crisis. First and Second Corinthians. First and Second Thessalonians and Galatians. Then we're going to look at Paul's apostolic method. Now, in your notes, you can see where I have here. I want you to write to the left of apostolic method these three words. Man, message, and method. You can look at the man, his message, and his method. The reason this is really important is If you're serious about the Bible and you're serious about seeking God, the message is pretty clear. You're saved by grace and faith in Jesus Christ, and he offers salvation as a gift because he took your place, became your substitute and my substitute, fulfilled all the requirements, and died a sinless death, shed his precious blood, Paid the penalty, and your sins are forgiven. Say, thank you, Jesus. Paul also had a method. Now, I want you to write next to the word method, pattern. Pattern. Uh, He had a pattern for every church he started. He never deviated from it. Why? Because it worked. Because it was effective. Because it rocked cities, regions, and ultimately continents. I'll give you one simple illustration. He's in Thessalonica for 10 weeks max. Maybe 12, but more likely 10 weeks. He won't go back there for six years. He leaves behind 10-week-old Christians with no Bible. No elders, actually. Many of them are martyred, and they had questions about death, so he answers the questions about death in 1 Thessalonians. A lot of them lost their jobs. Many of them were beaten severely, and the church didn't survive, it thrived. When we get to 1 Thessalonians, and you understand, this is what got me going on Paul 20 years ago. I I started asking the question, what did he do? 
How did he impact those people so quickly, so profoundly, so that without anything that we would normally have at our exposed uh, exposal in terms of tools or help aids or whatever, none of that was there. 10 to 12 week old Christians. Church, it takes your breath away when you really think about that. And here's a little key. He says, your joy in you was greater than the affliction coming at you. Paul, how'd you impart that? How did you release that? Here's one of his major keys. Paul, for the most part, was filled with joy. It was a strong joy. It was a powerful joy. That's why when he says in Philippians, rejoice in the Lord again, and again I say, rejoice. See, we sing that song, which is a great song to sing. He lived it. That was his, now he had his moments of depression. He had his moments of discouragement, but basically he was filled with an intoxicating joy. He was a fun guy to be around. He just drew you into his heart. That's why he says, I was like a mother when I was among you. And here's the key word now. If you write uh, there, instead of uh, information, do information versus impartation. Paul wasn't interested in giving out a lot of information. It was all about impartation. Impartation. We will illustrate this clearly when we get into his first sermon in Acts 13. This is one of the things I wrestle with in speaking for God for 40 years. God, am I just dispensing information and notebooks are being filled? Or are hearts being impacted, lives being changed? So good to hear this testimony. Brother was broke through in tongues three years ago. Bless the Lord. Keep speaking in tongues, brother. Don't stop. All right. It's all about impartation. And that's what I want to see happen in each one of your hearts. I want you to have an impartation of hunger, thirst, passion, fresh love, and fresh desire to get as close to Jesus as you possibly can, hear his heart as deep as you can, and follow his will for your life as clearly as you can. Does that sound like a deal? That's why we're here. All right, now... We're also going to talk about apostolic suffering. I want you to turn with me. Well, I'll do that later. Don't worry about it. 2 Corinthians 11 is a very, very important portion of Scripture. In fact, let's turn there quickly in our Bibles. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. I'm, uh, I'm not sure. Is it referenced in your timeline? Uh, pardon me? Okay, there you go. All right, let's go. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Uh, if you want to write in your notes somewhere, and we'll say it again, he wrote this in 57 A.D., 57 A.D., 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul gets very, very personal here, very, very personal. What's happening is his apostolic ministry is being challenged by false apostles who had invaded Corinth. So now he's dictating the second letter, and he's talking about his apostolic ministry. And he says in, in verse 24, this is just the physical aspects of it. Oh, well, let's start with verse 23. Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I more so. Far more labors, far more imprisonments, beaten times without number. He lost count. Beaten times without number, danger of death, 
Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Now, does anybody know what he's talking about there? When he says 39 lashes from the Jews, that was the Jewish synagogue discipline carried out by elders in the synagogue where they were trying to break someone who was off course. They were trying to break him. They were trying to discipline him. Incredibly painful. Your back is opened up. There's a lot of blood. Uh, It's just incredible. Five times Paul got that from the Jewish synagogue. Look at what else he says. Three times I was beaten with rods. Now that was carried out by the Romans. There were men specially trained in Rome. They were called lictors, L-I-C-T-O-R-S. They were specially trained to carry out that beating. It was actually a special wood they used to fashion this rod, okay, that had like a whip action to it. They could bring you to a hairbreadth of death. Ribs were usually always broken. A lot of blood, incredible pain. Three times Paul received rods. He goes on to say, three times uh, I was shipwrecked. Now this is not counting the one in Acts 27. That's number four. He says, once I was stoned. That's stoned to death. Um, Then he goes on to list all these dangers, rivers. We'll explain this as we go on in our journey. Robbers, countrymen, Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I'm going to explain all of that and when that actually happened. In other words, would you agree with me? He's in a lot of danger. And it doesn't matter where he went. Here's my point. We're going to put those beatings in his life context. We're going to try to share when did those actually happen. Here's what we know for sure. All this that he writes about happened before 57 AD. Okay? Uh, And so we're going to look at his life and try, and I'm going to encourage you, if you have liberty to write in your Bible, I'm going to have you do two things in the margins, particularly in the book of Acts. When to put in or where to put in when the actual epistle was dictated, and when some of these experiences happened, and it just makes the story come alive. Paul suffered a lot. Now church, we've got to come to grips with this. Why is this important to understand, the role of suffering in the life of a believer? Because in America in particular, you've got false gospels and false doctrines that eliminate suffering from the equation. I'm not talking sickness now. I'm talking suffering. There's a difference. You understand? But Paul is very clear in Philippians 3. In order to know the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. Okay, so we're going to have to understand. And, and I think this is so important. In fact, one of the reasons the Lord said, I want you to start teaching Paul again to the body of Christ. And the thing has just exploded the last three years is because only his pattern and method of church can withstand the coming persecution that's coming in this country. And we, so we got to take a look at that. And then apostolic work, of course, is the churches that he wrote. Second page, top of page two. We're going to learn to imitate Paul's ways and follow them carefully. You have a number of scriptures there. We're not going to go through all those. Let's just go to one of them. First Corinthians chapter four, first Corinthians chapter four, uh, verse 14. If I start talking too fast, raise your hand, please. Uh, Chapter 4, verse 14. 
I do not write these things to shame you, I'm in verse 14, but to admonish you as my beloved children, if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, you would not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus I became your father through the gospel. I exhort you, therefore, be imitators of me. For this reason I have sent to you Timothy, who is my beloved child in the Lord. He will remind you of my ways. There's a key word. Make note of that, what we're calling Paul's ways. That's another way of saying Paul's method. It's another way of saying that's how he impacted those Thessalonian young converts so that they withstood intense persecution, even as new Christians. So we want to look at his ways. As I teach everywhere in every church. Please take note of that. That speaks of consistency. It speaks of a pattern. It will transcend any culture, any societal barrier, financial, racial, doesn't matter. Young or old, doesn't matter. Paul's method reaches all. Paul's method is effective for all. Uh, Number uh, six, during this seminar, we're going to believe God to not only observe but experience the grace of God that Paul experienced. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 10. Does anybody know what that verse is? Very, very important verse in the life of Paul. I am what I am by the grace of God. Now, would you write next to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 10, Exodus 3. Exodus 3. And then I also want you to write just John's gospel next to that. And you can look at this later. Paul knows exactly what he's doing when he says, I am what I am. When Moses asked God, what's your name? I am. Now here's the good news, church, of the gospel of grace. He is, you aren't. How about if we agree with that right now? He's really strong, I'm really weak. He's really rich in grace, I'm really poor. And you know what he does, and I'll probably get more into this Sunday morning. He offers me the incredible invitation of the ages. Come as you are, and leave as I am. Does that sound like a good exchange? Okay. Uh, I am what I am. In John 7, you have seven I am's pointing to Jesus Christ. Can you give me just a couple? This is not a teaching on John. I am the door. I am the vine. I am the way. I am the light. I am the bread. In other words, every need you can possibly have as a believer in God is met by the I am of Jesus. That takes the sweat out of your walk. You can't. He will. Would you also write next to Corinthians 15, verse 10, Galatians 2, verse 20. Galatians 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but the life I now live, I live by faith in someone inside of me. That's the gospel in one verse right there. And Paul lived that. It's not about Chuck. It's not about Mike. It's about the treasure in the earthen vessel. It's about the earthen vessel getting broken, stepping aside. Child of God, please hear my heart. Your life is like a stage. There's only room for one actor. Either he's acting or you are. 
the more I get off the stage of my heart and let Jesus be center stage, the more peace, the more joy, the more rest, the more love, the more grace. I'm not even a supporting actor in this movie. I'm off the stage. And so we all are. Two words. We're going to talk a lot about these words. Here's how you get grace in your life. And here's how you will get more grace in your life. These two words are like magnets. In fact, you might want to write magnets down first, and I'll give you the two magnets. God is irresistibly attracted to these magnets in your heart. And He lavishes His grace on these two. Number one, humility. Humility. God resists the proud. He gives grace to the humble. Number two, second powerful word. Paul learned this. In some ways, he learned it the hard way. Weakness. Weakness. He finally is able to say in 57 AD, 2 Corinthians 12, not only am I not embarrassed about my weaknesses, I actually boast about them. I lift them up regularly because they are a landing pad for grace in my life. How many of you would admit you have weaknesses? Now see, you have a culture that wants you to hide your weaknesses and pretend they're not there. Have you ever filled out a job, a resume? Are you going to highlight your weaknesses? You're going to bury them as far as you can bury them, and you're going to come up with all these bogus strengths to try to get the job. That might work in secular America, but it doesn't work in the kingdom. And the kingdom is a kingdom of weaknesses. That's why Jesus sends you out as a sheep or lamb in the midst of wolves. He wants you weak. In other words, he will lead you into an impossible situation and then come to be your hero. Hallelujah. And that's the grace of God at work. Paul is the apostle of the heart set free. You can look at the stages of life that we will cover before salvation, salvation, preparation, you got three missionary trips, and then uh, his last years. I'm really asking that something happen in your heart. I'm always preaching to myself, by the way. I should have a mirror in front of me. But I, I, I want to I see Paul's passion, and I want to have an impartation in a fresh way of Paul's passion into my heart. And passion has to do with those two questions. Uh, number nine, quickly. To experience the freedom Paul lived in. One of the most favorite Paul verses is Galatians 5, verse 1. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Galatians 5, verse 1. What that means is, freedom in my life, your life, is both a goal and a process. How many of you would say you're more free today than you were last year? I hope so. But you realize there's a whole lot more freedom next year than you're not experiencing this year. Freedom is a never-ending process. This is really seen in worship. When I first came to a spirit-filled worship service, I freaked out. I'm watching everybody raising hands, shouting, praising God, clapping hands, and dancing. I thought they were nuts. Three weeks later, I came into a degree of freedom. I broke through. I got to about there. And that was it. All right. Well, praise God we're making progress. Another few weeks, I got up to about here. All right? And and then eventually, and then all of a sudden you start to relax. And then before you know it, you start dancing and shouting and rejoicing. Do you know what worship's all about? 
And Paul learned this. And when we get into the hidden life, we're going to talk a lot about worship. Worship's all about you losing self-consciousness and coming into God-consciousness. That's what it's all about. And when that happens, transformation begins to take place. Somebody will hide behind this phrase. I've heard it so much over the years, it's embarrassing. Well, that's just not my personality. Well, okay, so what, what, that can be changed. That can be altered. That can be transformed. All right, freedom, freedom. I need to get more free. Fill with the glory, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Uh, and then I love Acts 23, 9 to 15. I'll just say this quickly, and then we're going to move on. In terms of why study Paul. Paul had a secret. He had a secret in his life, and it can be your secret. It's why he says, imitate me. Every time he got into a very, very difficult place, sometimes he thought he was about to die. This would always happen without fail. Why? He had a covenant relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to just confess with me and just agree with me right now. I have a covenant relationship with Jesus Christ. Why do you have that? Because you're a Christian. Because you've invited him into your life. And you are in the new covenant. And because you are in covenant, that means God has your back. That means God is loyal. And when you get into the most difficult time in your life, similar to Paul... God's going to always come and he's going to do two things. He's going to give you a word that does two things. He's going to address your present condition and he's going to prophesy your future. He's going to address your present condition and he's going to give you hope for your future. He's going to give you faith for now and he's going to give you hope for future. It's called a fresh word from the Lord. It happened to Paul every time in his life. We will illustrate this. I could give you an illustration of my own life right now. No doubt you have testimony. When you're up against it and you're in that tight spot, here comes God. Uh, and then, very important, you say, it says there to discover our that and have grace imparted to walk it out. I'm going to explain what that means. I'm going to explain what that means. Is this making sense? This is what we want to do, and this is where we're going to look at. Now, I want you to turn to page, page three. How are we doing? Do we need a break? Can we keep going? How are we doing? Are we doing okay? All right, let's go in terms of the life of Paul. Page 3. Before salvation. Before salvation. Uh, I want to explain this, and this is going to help, hopefully, some of you. Uh, I, I want to see a show of hands here. How many of you were born again 10 years or younger? 10 years or younger? Okay, how many were born again 20 years old or younger? Okay, a few hands, not too many. How many of you were born again 30 years or younger? Okay. How old were you when you got saved? 29. This is good. No, this is really good. Uh, and I'm going to share with you now how this is really important. All right, now look at those three scriptures at the top there, before salvation. Before salvation. Uh, Galatians 1 verse 15 says this. You don't have to turn there for time's sake. It just says this. Before, while I was in my mother's womb, I was set apart. Okay, that's when 
Paul was set apart. That word set apart, by the way, means consecrated. All right. Uh, At the age of 34, okay, 33 actually, in about 34 AD is when he got born again, okay, on the Damascus Road. But he was set apart when he was in his mother's womb. Now, follow with me. When he gets saved and he really begins to understand the sovereignty of God and the ways of God, and he begins to see things in eternity past as well as eternity future, he writes something like in Ephesians chapter 1, whoa, not only was I set apart in my mother's womb, I was actually chosen, elected, and adopted before the foundations of the world. Somebody say, that's a long time ago. (laughs) Now, once you begin to see these verses... And meditate on these verses, they're, they're meant to do a couple of things. Number one, they're going to really put you in a place of rest. You really didn't have anything to do with your new birth experience. Why? Well, Paul's pretty clear about that because you're dead. You're dead. But God. But here's what I'm trying to share. If Paul was set apart from the womb, is born again in Acts at the age of 33... God was at work in his life before he got saved, sovereignly. And I'm going to tell you, God was at work in your life because you also were separated from your mother's womb. You also were chosen before the worlds were even created. And God saw, is it Jason or Justin? Troy. That word of knowledge is flowing. What is it? Troy. I love it. All right. Troy was in the heart of God before the world was created. Troy was set apart in his mother's womb. And then D-Day happened. When heaven invaded your life. We call it the new birth. But God was at work sovereignly, long before you got saved. Why is this important? It will help you to discover why you got saved. So let's look at our notes there, and let's just look. you got to hang in there with me on this session. Now, these first two sessions, I'm just kind of trudging along here and laying in some foundation. It'll get pretty exciting tomorrow, Lord willing, but hallelujah. All right, I want you to see God's sovereign preparation in the life of Paul. A, he's born a Roman citizen with rights throughout the empire. This is a big deal, church. This is going to be very, very crucial once he gets saved and becomes an apostle. One time, being a Roman citizen will save his life. To be a Roman citizen was a big deal. One time when he's challenged about, the the guard says, well, I paid a lot of money for my Roman citizen. Paul says, I was born a Roman citizen. Whoa, he backed off quick. It was very, very important to be a Roman citizen in that time. Look at what the benefits are. Fair public trials. You were exempt from certain punishments. You were protected from quick execution. And you had a right to appeal to Caesar. In order to prove you're a Roman citizen, would you write this word down? Just for This is just kind of a class now. Hang in there with me at the lecture or whatever, information. You had to have what's called a diptych. D-I-P-T-Y-C-H. That was an instrument that proved your Roman citizenship. 
See, if you were in a tight spot to cry out, Roman citizen, Roman citizen, and then you were not, you're really in trouble. So you had to prove that you were a Roman citizen. So Paul carried on his person. It'd be like a visa. 30 days after birth, you're registered and you have this proof of citizenship. Now, let's talk a little bit about Tarsus, the town where he grew up in. We saw it on the map there. If you look on your map, that's on a major trade route east and west. In the city of Tarsus was the second largest library in the world. The largest library was in Alexandria. The people were noted for their culture, for their philosophy. We, w- we could use the term, it was a university city. This is where Paul grew up in. Also, it was a very wealthy city. In the foothills outside of Tarsus, they, they grew a special sheep that had black hair that was very coarse, very durable, and was very good for making tents. And that's going to play an important role in Paul's life as an apostle because he was a tent maker. Paul was a full-time tent maker and a part-time apostle. Somebody say fairly effective ministry. All right. In fact, he worked his tent business so diligently that he actually financed eight young apostles he was training at one point in his life. Um, you know, in terms of Tarsus, you know, Alexander saved it. Alexander the Great actually saved her from being burned to the ground in 333. Cleopatra made a famous visit to Tarsus. Just sisters, for your info, you'll probably appreciate this. She flew in to the River Sidness from the Mediterranean going up eight miles to Tarsus. And legend says her sails were so filled with perfume, they smelled her hours before they saw her. I don't know if that's true. But sisters, whatever, hallelujah. Cleopatra and Anthony. All right, now, number two, look at B. In terms of Paul's God's sovereign hand, he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was born into a very strict Jewish family in a Greek-speaking city. Would you write next to that Ephesians chapter 4, where Paul talks about and makes an appeal to fathers. Fathers, be careful how you deal with your sons. Here's what many scholars believe. Paul had a very difficult father, probably whooped him a lot, very strict. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was a legalist. You follow the rules. You follow the regulations. And then you're maybe accepted. Uh, He was a Jew by birth from the tribe of Benjamin. All right, look at, at number four there. At 14 years of age, Paul was showing signs of brilliance, so he was sent to Jerusalem to study under the lead rabbi of the day, which was named Gamaliel. Okay? He's there for six years. He had a... a, a, And Gamaliel will later show up in the book of Acts. We'll see his heart. At the age of 20, Paul moves back to Tarsus and learns his trade, and he's also married. Uh, To be in the place of leadership that Paul was, marriage was a requirement. It was very rare for, for even any rabbi, for that matter, but to be in the Sanhedrin and to be in that inner circle of leaders. Now, you know, I'm not going to make a doctrine of it, but trust me, I've studied a lot, and have most scholars, the, the, the majority of reputable scholars, the main one that I have used is a guy by the name of F.F. F. Bruce, now in heaven, 
since Paul was married at one point in his life. Now, what happened to his wife? Well, probably one of two things. She could have died young, or very likely she left him because of the faith. And so when he writes 1 Corinthians 7 about an unbeliever leaving, uh, you know, it could be very, very autobiographical. We're not going to overly speculate, but anyway. He stays in Tarsus for 10 years till about the age of 30. In the meantime, Jesus has happened, Calvary has happened, and the church has started, and he will then come back to Jerusalem. Now, Number C, this is really crucial. As to the law, Paul was a Pharisee. Uh, if you see in your notes there, uh, have you ever wondered, where did the Pharisees come from? Who are these guys? Remember Butch Cassie and the Sundance Kid? Who are those guys? Who are these guys? And, and the Pharisees, there's a period between the last book in the Old Testament and the book of Matthew. It's 400 years. And in about the middle of that period, the Pharisees kind of emerged. They were kind of like cutting edge. They were like a, a, a minority standing for truth, standing for God. Uh, they, they were loving the law, loving the word. And so you have these Pharisees. Now, you also see there in number two, uh, there in your, about the middle of your page, you have the Sadducees. Now, how many remember the Sadducees that show up in the gospel? Who are these guys? Number one, they're really wealthy. Number two, they're really liberal in belief. Uh, they don't believe in the supernatural. They don't believe resurrection. They don't believe in miracles. Uh, the high priest was the Sadducee. And they ran the temple. They were the money guys. And then you have this group called the Essenes. So there's three main groups in Judaism in the first century. Pharisees, Sadducees, and Essenes. Now, who are the Essenes? These are the weirdos. These are the rough wilderness guys out in the desert. These guys raised up John the Baptist. This is who John the Baptist hung out with in all of his hidden years. Uh, they, they hated both the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and they thought they were the only ones saved and the only ones that were faithful to God. So those are three uh, groups of, of Jews, as you will. Then you'll also see... Um, uh, there's Hellenistic Jews and Hebrew Jews. Hang in there with me. I know I'm throwing out a lot at you, and you can reflect on this later, but it's important to understand Paul. Hebrew Jews were, spoke Aramaic, were legalistic, loved the law. Hellenistic Jews were Greek-speaking, had a separate synagogue. They actually had a separate Old Testament written in Greek called the Septuagint. Stephen was a Hellenistic Jew. They tended to be more moderate, more open. They were scattered throughout the Roman Empire. When you remember when the Jews came back from Babylon, okay, and the restoration of the temple in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, most of those Jews actually didn't go back during that time. It was just a remnant. The rest stayed scattered, and many of them became these Hellenistic Jews, Greek-speaking Jews. That's why it says there there were two types of synagogues during Paul's day. Now, D, this is crucial. The future apostle of grace was deeply instructed in the law, and he knew its burden. 610 laws. Paul had the entire five books memorized. You know what he says about the law in Philippians 3? I kept it. 
according to the law, I was blameless. Later on, he will discover he wasn't righteous before God, but he kept the law. 